I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at sax.com. I hear you. I'll give you I'll give you a sound bite later. Jet is at the point of the evening. She's like, this day is done. Hey everyone, thanks so much for choosing to spend your time with us here on Repin. I'm Evelyn, your host. This podcast is about representation of all kinds, from race, gender, orientation, to ideas, dreams, to values. Here, we have candid conversations with notable people. We go beyond the images and headlines, and on Repin, you'll gain insight into how they became the people you know today. They're all here sharing their experiences because it's important that we have meaningful, nuanced, authentic conversations that take us beyond what's on the surface, all in an effort to create positive change. Today, my guest comes from the world of ballet. She's an award-winning dancer, the first Asian-American female soloist for the New York City Ballet. She's also the author of a book called Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina. Her memoir takes you backstage and shows you the real world of elite ballet, giving you a look at her career trajectory and all the very complicated social issues that exist, even in the sophisticated world of ballet. She's also a civil rights activist. She co-founded Final Bout for Yellowface, an incredible campaign to combat Asian stereotypes in ballet productions. Sitting down to talk with me today is the amazing artist and game changer, Georgina Paskogan. Georgina, thank you so much for being on the podcast. You look wonderful. How are you? I'm well. Thank you for having me. I'm so looking forward to this conversation. 
Yeah, I'm so excited. You have a great book out. It's called Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina. We're going to get into it for sure. But before we start, because this is a podcast, give us an introduction of who you are, your background, your heritage, your ethnicity. I know you're one of six kids. That is correct. What were the holidays like? (laughs) Yeah, give me a little bit about your upbringing, a little bit about your heritage, and what you were like as a kid. Well, I sit here, a multicultural woman. I am currently, just for a visual description, I'm wearing just like a black t-shirt. My hair that's usually dark black has been tied a nice wine-colored red because I'm going full witch these days. I'm wearing um, hot pink lipstick with some black eyeliner. And um, my father is Filipino and my mother is Italian. And you are correct. I am one of six kids and the holidays were insanely fun. Just fun, fun, fun and madness. I think one of my best stories is when I, because I'm always dancing during Christmas, so it's very rare that I can get home. But I had told my mom I couldn't come this particular Christmas, but then I drove home anyway and surprised them. But they were having like a rager at the house. (laughs) A rager? (laughs) everyone was living their best life and then I walked in and they were like Gina's here kids everywhere it was just bananas that's so awesome now one of six kids from a small town in Pennsylvania right Altoona yes with your mixed race background and heritage what was it like for you in a small town in Pennsylvania being Filipino and Italian so surprisingly Yes, Altoona is not as diverse as like New York City is, but I never really realized my my ethnicity was not never an issue. I I did go to Catholic school. We had a number of exchange students, so I was always in a class with people who are from different countries or maybe spoke a different language. And then my dad being Filipino, I had my doctor actually was Southeast Asian. Oh. So I kind of grew up around people and like through periphery through my family. I didn't see myself as other. It was, it was weirdly when I came to New York City. Interesting. And not even in the school of American ballet. It was really sort of when I got into the company that it was started being presented to me. You know, like at the school, like I noticed that none of the ballerinas on the wall kind of shared my dark hair or my complexion. And, you know, like I wrote my book reports on Maria Tallchief and Alicia Alonzo. I did not know of Sona Asato and her amazing career at that point. But I have to also acknowledge my inherent privilege because I do pass in my everyday life. Having a father who is from an Asian country, the Filipino country, for him, it was the highest mark of success. Not only had he completely assimilated into American culture, but that his children did not speak his first language. It was his choice to not steep me in that and to present me in this lane that I think he inherently saw as an easier one. The sad thing, though, and what our conversations now have is that, and speaking of like the colorism that exists within the Asian diaspora, right? I think. He viewed, and he is also, you know, just conservative thinking in general. He views me as less Asian than him. And my experience for sure is different than his experience was. Sure. But that what was, I think, very eye-opening for him to hear was when I sat down 
and explain to him that it didn't really matter what he tried to present me as. The world still sees me as this exotic Asian American female trope. One of the big things that you you and I talked about was narrative, mm-hmm. um, owning our own narrative. And we're going to get into that. Now, I want to go back to your book. It's called Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina. It is honest. It is your love letter, correct? To ballet, but like any relationship, it's not without heartache and growth and pain and self-reflection, but also joy and beauty. You tackle some very sensitive, socially important issues like body shaming, racism, and ultimately about being put in someone else's narrative, like having to deal with someone else's idea of you. Your book is filled with so many honest experiences and also humor. What gave you the inspiration and also the courage to write this book? Thank you. It's hard to put into words. I will say the genesis of this book happening was that I was in LA. I was broken. I had a torn ACL and I would meet for coffee with my friend, Phil Rosenthal. He loves food. I love food. (laughs) Okay. You know, we were just catching up and I was just telling, regaling him the stories in the morning. And he was like, you know, this should be a book. Have you ever thought about writing a book? And I was like, yeah, 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 it's on the back corner. He's like, no, no, no. I think you need to do this. You should do this. So I have to thank him from the bottom of my heart for really pushing me to be like, no, your story is worth hearing. Not only is it worth hearing, but it's wildly entertaining because it's you. So uh, humor, I tend to deflect with a lot of humor, but I also really love to laugh. At the end of the day, I get to do something so amazing for my job. And I know in the sense of like what I think our listeners here probably understand about ballet is they, the only exposure that they may or may not have had, I don't want to make an assumption, but was like Black Swan, the movie, or like the red shoes. All of these are narratives about like crazy, insane women, but they're like not funny. Right. And I think what I wanted to do was make ballet relatable who I am as Georgina Pascogan, who I am as the rogue ballerina, my moniker is I want to ensure that ballet survives into the future. How do we do that? We have to make it relatable and we need to feature more people of the global majority as headliners. I knew my story would get hidden. The ballet world is so small and yes, I've made a name for myself, but I want to leave the art form better than when I found it. And so really putting a stamp on my narrative, grabbing hold of it. So I have to give some context here. In my world, in the ballet world, I do not have a ton of agency. That's just the power dynamics of being in a ballet company. One person is called the artistic director and that one person decides everything. I don't even get to tell people when I need to go to the doctor. My schedule is given to me 48 hours in advance. And when I first started, it was given to me the night before at around nine or 10. But that was before the internet was like, I'm dating myself. That was before the internet was like really, really, really like accessible. (laughs) I mean, like we had like the dial up, but like 
So I had to call in and listen to hear my name pronounced wrong. (laughs) Back in the old days with landlines. Yeah. So like, that's the context of this. And I love the process of telling stories. So this was just another way to explore and challenge myself and also hold myself accountable for my own work in this greater social reckoning we are having as as a, a human race. Yeah, we have to do a lot of reckoning. Some of the things that you share in the book, share one that was a defining moment that was challenging. What was challenging about it? And ultimately, where did that turn the corner where you found your strength and your narrative. Because, you know, you could talk a lot about narratives, but a lot of people don't know how to find their narrative. It is no lie that I am the first Asian American female soloist to have ever been promoted out of the corps de ballet of New York City. And it's 70, that's a seven and a zero year existence. Yeah. And there comes with a certain connotation. So I was having, I would call it an altercation with my artistic director at the time. At this point, I was doing a ton of soloist and principal work. I wanted to uh, show him that I was ready to make the next step, that I deserved this promotion. Yeah. And in this ballet, I played the evil queen Carabas, and I was doing the, the fairy of courage in the beginning of Sleeping Beauty, where all the fairies bless the the poor little girl before she's forced to go to sleep and then marry a man. Anyway, <laughs> that's a different podcast. There's a totally different podcast. Yeah, that's, that's part two. About s- stories that are outdated yes. of, of women in their agency. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's an <laughs> offline conversation for another time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you had an altercation <laughs> with, with this person. Yeah. And so like, but I wanted to, in the second act, like I wanted to advance to learn the princess, Princess Florine and her, her bird. And it's a divertissement in the third act. And I was making the case of why I think I should be called in the room. And he just was telling me that he didn't see me like that. And I get to do so many things. And why can't I just be happy with what he gives me? And I was trying to make the point that, oh, but I know you you see me as this very either overly sexualized woman doing coffee or playing the MILF nurse in his version of Romeo and Juliet. You don't see me as the princess, although I do these like character roles really, really well. I just having a conversation the other day that it's like, basically, I've lived a silent actress's life that also dances for about 20 years. So I have a certain understanding of the proscenium and how to affect people. I think that's also just one of my gifts beyond being a talented mover. And so this discussion got super, super heated and it got a little bit scary for me. You'll have to read the book for all the tea on that. And he said no. And then it got to the point where I really thought I was going to get fired as a result of speaking up for myself. It had escalated so terribly that I not only at one point feared for my safety in the room, but it was very clear to me that this person would never see me as the leading roles that I always were taught in the School of American Ballet and in Altoona, Pennsylvania, that I could attain. I could be the princess. I could be the queen. He did not see that. And it had nothing to do with the size of my thighs. It had everything to do 
with who I am and what I represent in my heritage. So what happened? What did you do? So then I continued to work on it. And I doubled down on the actual classical variation that I was doing. And and I sought out extra coaching and I kept improving. Two weeks later, uh, I was called into a meeting right before Carabas. And I had been channeling all of my rage and all of this like into this Carabas character, which was insanely fun to do anyway. Right. And he, in a very surprised move, he promoted me and he said that I had made it undeniable. And I think that that was a very important moment in which it stemmed from this terrible, terrible thing. But it it stemmed from me having the courage to go in there, knowing that this person was most likely going to react badly to me, just disagreeing with this sort of monarchal rule that he had using my actual voice. That was one of the first times I used my voice to advocate for myself. That's awesome. And then it resulted in that. Granted, that wasn't the only reason why I got promoted. I mean, I got right. like I said I've been nailing it for the past couple of years. <laughs> yeah, for, I mean, sure. for sure. There's so many things there. I mean, let's just stop for just a second. As a podcast network, our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you. But we also sell merch. And organizing that was made both possible and easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. They have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. So wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free. And when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. 
This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. First of all, were you not scared about, you know, speaking up? Because regardless of what industry you're in, sometimes going up against the boss, so to speak, is daunting. It has repercussions. The stakes are high. It can get very hairy. It's scary to hear that you were worried about your safety. Did you have any like like trepidation in terms of going to this person and trying to do better for yourself and to go after something you want? Do you think it's a woman thing? Do you think it's an industry thing? And where did you get your guts? Yeah, I think that there's something inherent to me, but there is something in speaking of like, things that are passed down generationally. It took a lot for my dad to leave the Philippines and come here and not only get his surgical degree, but like to also become a general surgeon. Like, and he had a license to practice in so many different states. My dad is not, he's not very like effusive with knowledge. So like, I like this is over time that I figured out how hard he had worked and how much money he had sent home to his family. And then also my mom was in a previous relationship with someone who cheated on her and then wanted her to be in a polygamous relationship. So she is quite a very strong woman. My grandmother grew up in the depression. I think there's an inherent stubbornness. I mean, there's also like, you got Filipino and you've got Italian. Stubborn upon stubborn. Oh man. (laughs) Yeah. But it's also just like the, the grit and the dedication of just practicing ballet every single day. So you try and you practice. It's an acknowledgement that I will never perfect this art form. I wasn't designed by any higher power to do this art form. I was given some sort of anatomic traits that allow me to lift my leg to my ears. It's this practice, this honing, this discipline. And I guess I have always been used to working towards getting what I need within my own body. It didn't really ever occur to me that it was I was going to not not that I haven't heard the word no. I hear the word no all the time. I was expecting the word no, but I knew that I am also a really good negotiator and there was a way to meet in the middle. And also, like I have to say that like the rest of my colleagues who did not look like me, according to women, who matched my boss's ideal of what his aesthetic of a ballerina is, this white Eurocentric ideal, they were like, yeah, if you're feeling like he's not seeing you, you should just go talk to him. It's like really easy. I talked to him and it was fine. It was like not fine. Yeah, me. that's not. I like blindly took their advice. <laughs> but I was also like, just like, I, you know, I'm in my early 20s. Like I wasn't connecting all these dots. Right. Writing this book had me zoom out. And then you're like, oh, so much makes sense now. That's a pretty big lesson to learn at 20. When I was in my 20s, I was not self-realized. I would be so nervous to pitch even ideas to producers because I, I don't know that I was actually heard. And here you are. You're in your 20s. You go up to your artistic director. 
You're speaking up. That's one thing. And he's, you know, obviously not agreeing with you. And you don't back down. I don't know that if I had finally mustered the guts to to try to advocate for myself at work, if I was met with disagreement, I would just back off. The fact that you didn't is amazing. And then now you are putting all of this in a book to voice and to illustrate the need to be seen, the need to be heard, the need to have your own narrative. Was there any anxiety or fear when he was coming back at you? Absolutely. This is a person that you like you get the in the ballet world we call it the the nervous poops. Like just like before you go on stage. It's pretty universal. <laughs> yeah. So like when this person, this person wielded this much power that even when they taught company class, he for lack of a better word, and it is a sensationalized word to a certain extent, but the way he ruled, he wanted that anxiety. He created that. Right. That fed him in a certain way. So there's a there's a system that's like this. And you come in being a person that thinks you have an idea of who you are. And then you get swept in. And you're like, who am I? <laughs> I, I? Yeah. No, I hear you. I had to assess my actual talent early on. I had to like, there's an inherent competition to what I do. I'm not out here saying that I should be the white swan. And no, I'm out here saying that I would be a great firebird. I would be a fantastic Juliet. There are things that I can do. I'm not, I'm not trying to do things that I don't think are outside of my wheelhouse. That's where I think that he and I clashed because I think he saw it too, but he wasn't able to connect that there was perhaps maybe an inherent bias within him that didn't see me doing these things. It wasn't my lack of technique. It wasn't my lack of anything. It wasn't the shape of my thighs. So when you got that promotion, after all of that fighting and, you know, anxiety and the nervous poops, which I think is universal regardless of what industry you're in, um, I think we all get that in different situations. But... After you went through that very heated argument and you didn't back down and then you got what you wanted, how did that shape you? I had, in the span of that two weeks, in addition to doing my job and rehearsing harder, I went and auditioned for San Francisco, but I made uh, arrangements to leave. I didn't really love being in confrontation, being in an adversary position. Right. Nobody really wants that. But it gave me an idea like, oh, you do have power here. You could leave. It's not too late. I mean, it would suck. It's already been about 10 years. But it's not too late for me to grab hold. So then I continued down this path. And I think it just fueled this like inner freedom in me. And then my dancing got better. I stopped dancing for him. And I started dancing for me. That's kind of like the crux of this book. It's about ballet because I happen to do that for a living and that's like awesome. But I think what's what's bigger about this book and then now that it's been a couple of weeks and some of friends who are outside of my insular world of ballet have read it, it's been the female and the male response outside being like, this speaks so powerfully to anyone who has ever been made to feel other. And that it speaks to this power of grabbing hold of your narrative, that you have the freedom to tell it. You have the freedom to redesign it if you want to. 
how did you find your narrative through the was it through the process of writing the book or did you sort of get that before and you're sharing it the genesis of my moniker the rogue ballerina yeah let's talk about that because this answers your question it's because I was always being told like, oh, you should go do Broadway. Oh, you should go do TV and film. Even my boss was like, you are going to leave me, quote unquote, you will leave me to go star in TV and film. And that was his fear. And I was like, whoa, I am here though. Like I'm in your office right now asking to do parts. Like I'm not really, right. like, <laughs> people were always, and they were point, constantly pointing out things that made me look different from the other girls in the line. Right. And there was a gig back home where my insistence on being in the right color tutu to dance Paquita, they were trying to put me in a pink tutu. And I was like, no, this has to to be this like black red tutu that I know we have. We can like fix it. I guess I'm a little bit of a method sort of actress. (laughs) Okay, that's cool. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I like it. Uh, And so like this nickname, like blah to. Blah to? Blah. It's like, Black tutu, but blah tutu ballerina. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then I just one day woke up and before the book, I was like, who am I? What do I stand for? This question that keeps coming by. It's like, I'm sacrificing so much to do what I love, but why do I love it? And how do I want to change it? Because obviously this, this world doesn't accept me. Why doesn't this world accept me? what can I do to fit into this world? And finally, I was like, you don't have to. You just need to embrace what makes you different. And that's how the rogue ballerina came up. It's a spin on the negative connotation of rogue. We think of like these stories of like rogue animals go out. Like, no, it's like, it's okay to, you can go rogue in a positive sense and grab hold of all of the seeming obstacles that make us, all of our flaws. And I like to say I'm spinning it into the best possible gold it can be. I think that, you know, from this moment that you just shared where you woke up and you were asking yourself these questions, I think your sense of self and your confidence in who you are was pulled into focus when you, you know, wrote the book. The book had a part of it, but it was when I founded Final Bow for Yellow Face with Phil Chan. Yeah, your effort to break Asian stereotypes. Uh-huh. Tell me more about that. Having always been a person of color in a white Eurocentric space and in also understanding how dancers who have darker skin than I have, how seeing upfront and close and personal, how they have struggled. Even my experience is different from their experience and owning my privilege in that. Starting to do the work, I realized that, oh, there's a whole nother side of me that I can grab hold of and claim because for the longest time I tried to shove the Asian part of me to the back. That's what my father wanted. He didn't want that either. But then what's so amazing about being mixed race and multicultural is the ability. It's not about claiming half of anything. You can be both. You can be all. Right. That's when I really started to get into who I am. Granted, I had like the rogue ballerina. I had this discipline. I had this idea. I had this sort of Sagittarius. Don't tell me what to do. I'm going to do the opposite kind of. (laughs) (laughs) Don't cage me. But it was when I started to really kind of hone in on these ideas. And to be fair, I am an infinitely curious person. 
in the midst of all of this, I set a goal that I was like, I'm going to learn American Sign Language, which I didn't make this goal, but I'm still going to do it. And I'm saying it out loud to hold myself accountable to do it. Okay. And I'll follow up with you in a few months to make sure that you can you figure it out. Yeah. I mean, you could, if you haven't learned already, we can do the classes together. I'd love that. I'm I do know how to sign my name, but let's start with the beer first, Georgina. <laughs> there is something I wanted to make clear. When you say you pushed aside your Asian self, it wasn't to deny that, right? It was just to assimilate. Yeah. It was an effort to assimilate and to be accepted. I just wanted to clarify that because I don't want people to misunderstand you. Oh, no, of course. Like it was my life in the ballet world is a series. It's a an acrobatic life of code switching. I totally get that. Yeah. It wasn't a matter of denying my heritage. I never denied it. There was another moment, which was an important moment in which my boss asked me to look, quote unquote, less oriental, to which I replied, I, I am neither a rug nor a spice. Oh my God. This is my heritage. And with this makeup on, like if you're going to accentuate my features, this is who I am. I cannot change that. I'm horribly embarrassed for the person who said that. Yeah, it's not great. Yeah, definitely not great. With this book, I think you're opening a lot of doors to conversations that need to be had and perspectives that need to be considered. And I think, you know, and and again, you correct me if I'm wrong, one of the missions of this book is to encourage the ballet world to have more contemporary ideas. I think someone's always saying, you know, Someone has to step up and do it, but nobody wants to be that somebody. Do you know what I mean? Like nobody wants to be that person who trailblazes because generally it's wonderful that you're a trailblazer, but what comes with being a trailblazer oftentimes is that you're going to be the one that takes the brunt of it. What made you make that commitment to say, I'm going to be as honest as, a, as you are in your book and what is it that you want to do for others Well, first of all, thank you for calling me a trailblazer, but I am not a first. And as I continued to do my work, I found more, not only Asian American ballerinas, more black ballerinas, more brown ballerinas, more indigenous dancers who had been making waves, not only in the ballet world, but in the world of Hollywood. There's such a dance history in Los Angeles that I'm just only beginning to learn about. Balanchine and Danilova and Ailey, they all went out to LA because there was some great stuff happening in dance. And this is prior to Balanchine creating the Nutcracker. I feel like I have those ancestors in a sense, those people. Okay. That's something that carries me and gives me the courage because, you know, Sonoma Sata had it so much harder than I did. She couldn't even go on tour because of, you know, what was happening in our country at that time. And I, for the most part, I get to to live in New York City and I get to go to what I believe is the greatest dance company in the world. And I still have managed to make a name for myself there. Okay, I agree. There were women before us that broke barriers. We stand on their shoulders. But my point is this, Georgina, you are a part of the that group of women who are opening doors for the, the generations to follow. I don't know if it's just because I am one of six kids and have been around and I've 
seen so many women make it through the door and then firmly shut it behind them. And not only does that happen in the ballet world, but it happens in so many other situations. And I made a promise to myself that if I were to be able to break through, I'm dragging as many friends as I can through the door. Right. It's up to them to have to do the work, but this is what it is. It's the same thing as I feel about the the larger institution of ballet. It's like, here's the gate, here's the book, written the book. It's out there now. There's no putting it back into the, you know, into the box. Come with me because I know for a fact, I am a completely different person than I even was at the start of 2019. I mean, how is anyone the same person? And I, and this is where I'm struggling even now in this current moment, knowing everything that's going on in the world right now. And the fact that I have the freedom as a woman in this country to go put on a leotard and tights and go dance. It is not lost on me. How do I make that better? When you're putting your story on paper and you're seeing the words and your story come back at you, it's like a real reflection. You must have been a little bit nervous to kind of put so much of yourself out there. Oh, yeah. So what made you say, I'm not backing out. I'm putting it out there. What was it that you sort of called upon within yourself to forge ahead? There is a version of this book that didn't have my poor moral choices in dating someone who was married that didn't have the story of me deciding to get liposuction because I thought that would be terrifying to put out there, especially for young women reading. But what is more terrifying than the images we project of ourselves on our social media and in in our play toys? And it's done its damage. So me being honest about how I had, how far I went to try to fit into that idea that has been subconsciously put in front of every single woman. I read the version of the book and I was like, this sucks. I can't hold these other people accountable. I can't hold the institution accountable without truly holding myself accountable, without truly owning up to where I have been complicit in my own power structures. That's why I don't have any guilt about anything that's in the book. I commend you for that because that's not an easy road. But now that you went down that road, do you feel stronger that you see a fuller picture of who you are? Because I think as people, we continue to evolve and, and to grow. Yes. And we're not perfect. The human experience is not meant to be neat. Like a happy-go-lucky thing <laughs> or neat. I love that word, neat. It's not neat. You asked the question, not only was it hard to like write it and read it multiple times, but also to do the audiobook version, to voice the person who had emotionally abused me, to take on that voice yeah, and to present that person in the fairest way I could, thinking and knowing and having committed myself to trying to work in partnership with people moving forward in my relationships moving forward, having done this work. Now that took some deep, deep, deep digging and so many therapy sessions right? because it was hard and it was hard and it was triggering. I didn't want to make 
it a caricature. It could have easily gone that far. Right. And I thought, no, it's important because this person has a view too. That took a lot of growth. Yeah. I think it helped me through a lot of what has happened. And if I should ever be awarded that kind of power, how I would do things differently. I'm not saying that I ever want to be an artistic director. I have other aspirations of telling different stories in different ways. But I think being able to come to the table with fully developed ideas on how the institution of ballet macro talk can better serve its individuals that dedicate their lives to the practice. I think that's a worthwhile conversation. By sharing your story, you give voice to a lot of important issues that need to be thought of and thought of differently. So now that you have gone through so many drafts of your book and then have had to voice and relive some of the hardships that you've experienced, what do you celebrate about your story? I, uh, what an, what an amazing question that has not been asked yet. And I have done a lot of interviews. What am I celebrating? I think I am celebrating this agency that I've had all along and that I'm only the harnessing more and that I am able to reach people in, in a way that's making people want to come to the ballet. I'm celebrating that with uh, this whole situation, us uh, still being in a pandemic, trying to do a season, understanding that like, people want to come to the ballet because they are reading this story that had a certain idea. They didn't think that they were good enough, made enough money to walk in those doors of the theater. And that they think now that, oh, I'm going to go because I want to see up close and personal what she's talking about with this love, this magic that happens on stage. And I think what I'm celebrating is I'm celebrating the young men and women of color who might eventually read this book because their parents have read this book and they will be, oh, it can happen. I'm celebrating that. I'm celebrating the fact that my body has been put through the ringer. Obviously, I have a very interesting relationship to my body and to my mental state. And I am in the, the moments right now, and I might get a little emotional as being like, you have this physical body has taken me so far and it's going to continue to take me farther. But none of it should be taken for granted because we aren't granted every day. And like, I am celebrating this amazing career that like is outlined in this book. Like the facts are there. The receipts are there. That's pretty amazing. Does some pretty great things. Yes, of course, Gina, you want to do more, but you've really done a great job. It's been a moment for me to really sit back and acknowledge like, wow. This really is a dream realized. And however many years I have left before it's my turn to transition, like my body won't be able to do this anymore. And I feel it. I feel it every single day, even being in this moment, granted, knowing that I am healthy. And I say this knowing that people are fighting for their lives right now. Yeah. 
I have asked so much of my physical form already. It's not sustainable forever. So I want to enjoy it the time I have left doing this in this intensity. It doesn't mean I'm going to stop dancing, but for however longer I am granted the opportunity to do ballet, I I want to enjoy it. You know what? I can't wait to see what else you bring to this world. But it is that time, Georgina. I have a signature sign-off on the podcast. Okay. Let me know who you are and what you represent. My name is Georgina Paskogan, and I am the Rogue Ballerina. And I represent the possibility and the ever-growing pursuit of the infinite capacity of love we as all humans have. Thank you to Georgina Paskogan for her time, honesty, and activism. Definitely check her book out, Swan Dive, The Making of a Rogue Ballerina, and follow her on social media. Like always, I'll have those links in the episode description. And if you want to get to know Georgina in seconds, check out some exclusive content available on Instagram at reppin underscore podcast. And talk to me. You can let me know your thoughts and find me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast. Next up, we've got Tony Giroux from the Breakthrough Lifetime Special, A Sugar and Spice Holiday, and Motherland, Fort Salem. Like it doesn't matter what your job is, doesn't matter, you know, where you're from, what you look like. There's always bridges that we can build. What's up, everybody? It's Tony Giroux on Reppin. It's where we have conversations that create change. Every episode of Reppin is available for download. So collect them all like your favorite baseball cards, stamp collection, your stuffed beanie babies, whatever you collect, just get them on your devices and share them with your friends and leave us a review on podcasts, good pods, or wherever you listen to podcasts. With great love and thanks to Nelson Pinero and Gracie Kung. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Nowadays, trends and news cycles change faster than we can blink. But there are some things that withstand the test of time. And if you're looking for a connection to something timeless, and maybe also a glimpse of life at a slower pace, I believe everyone can relate to the very human experiences explored in Jane Austen's novels. And that's where I come in. My name is Alison Larkin. I'm a writer, comedian, and narrator and host of The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin. I spent a lot of my childhood in the part of England where Jane Austen lived and wrote, and now that I live in the States, nothing gives me a sense of homecoming quite like narrating her books. On this show, you'll listen to award-winning narration. I'll give myself a pat on the back for that as well as conversations with actors, writers and other fascinating people who all share a passionate love for Jane Austen. So please, join me as we embark on a wonderful journey through Jane Austen's work. Be sure to listen and subscribe to The Jane Austen Podcast with Alison Larkin wherever you get your podcasts.